Welcome back from your weekends. Um, so to a little bit later on the show today, uh, in the second segment, well, let me put it this way. I was really, I was reading this really interesting article in Deadspin about the way the whole editorial staff of Sports Illustrated kind of crashed. And then Deadspin's entire editorial staff <laughs> resigned en masse. It's like I'm reading about Jonestown in a Heaven's Gate publication or something. It just, you know, both of these really esteemed but very different sports publications have run into the kinds of problems that publications run into in 2019. Anyway, that is to come. So is a conversation about President Obama's uh, remarks about wokeness. Uh, that'll be our final segment today. But in the beginning, you know, I mean, we could almost schedule this every week. There's just like a bunch of odd things that President Trump will have done over the previous three or four days. They require digesting. Digesting requires enzymes. And uh, fortunately, uh, Alexandra Petri, who is not only a very, very funny columnist for The Washington Post and a world pun champion and the author of A Field Guide to Awkward Silences, but she's also an enzyme. Uh, so uh, we've asked her once again to come on our show and help us understand as best we can what has happened. Welcome back, Alexandra. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to just be an enzyme. <laughs> Isn't it? Isn't it? Doesn't it feel great? Uh, so um, so where we're going to begin is something that you've written about. And I don't really remember, like I, I grew up in a world where the president lived at the White House. Like, you know, they would maybe have hyannis or something. But, you know, that's like I don't really think about where the president lives. The president lives at the White House. So President Trump has done one of his many odd things, and he has changed his primary residence from Manhattan to Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, he and Melania have filed a declaration of domicile, one of many declarations I'm sure they will be filing over the course of the next few years, uh, saying that Mar-a-Lago will be their permanent residence. He's also tweeted that he cherished New York and the people of New York. So maybe we should begin there because um, that's one of the things that he's always really kind of presented himself as, right? He is a New Yorker. He loves New York. Apparently just not quite so much, right? Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't be the first to make the joke that the ultimate New Yorker move is to suddenly declare that your new domicile is Florida, but I am <laughs> the one making it now. Um, okay. But no, I think it is funny as you point out that he never sort of do the thing where I'm, I'm leaving New York to go to Washington. It's always like, well, my primary residence is going to be somewhere different. I guess the good thing is that he's now going to be summering where he winters uh, in Mar-a-Lago, the winter White House slash White House slash place where you can go and get access to the president, sometimes by accident, sometimes not even on purpose. So, I mean, what, what you've also suggested, what would be consistent with the Trump inner narrative at all times would have been for New York to beg him to stay. Although that doesn't really seem to be what happened. I mean, the governor said good riddance. Uh, and he, oh, I said, I say tweet, said, he's, he tweeted good riddance, uh, which maybe isn't necessarily the kind of thing that Donald Trump thinks about in terms of his relationship with any place like New York. No, exactly. Once the accountability starts, uh, he starts to feel less welcome. And I think, you know, the classic sort of reason why I'm leaving New York essay that everyone always writes before they depart. Uh, I was trying to picture what Donald Trump's version of that would sort of be like. And, you know, the co constant refrain, was it the city that changed or was it me? And I think he probably wouldn't have enjoyed most of the things that are 
cool about the city. Like, I can't imagine him thinking much of the Statue of Liberty, uh, sort of a woman over the age of 40. Can you imagine? And, be- uh, and beckoning Im- immigrants message, to our... I can't yeah, imagine him approving of. Right. I mean, beckoning immigrants to our shores, who needs that? Um yeah, I mean, he and he's made a number, as you pointed out, a number of kind of tactical blunders or things that didn't come out so well. Uh, I mean, including the full page ad in the newspaper calling for the death penalty for the Central Park Five, who turned out to be, what's the word, innocent? Yeah, the exonerated five. Yeah, no, just things like that. Like, wh- is there going to be a newspaper in Florida that's going to be able to catch and kill his stories for him freshly uh, so that he can cook them to a nice for medium well consistency and then devour them as he does his steaks. Who knows? Um, but I guess if anywhere we'll welcome him, it's the state of Florida. He can become a Florida man, which I, I, the way he's been conducting himself, I think maybe a, a dream and goal of his. Right. No, he's been a Florida man all along, uh, irrespective of where he lives. And and actually, if you think about it, I think most of those catch and kill newspapers like the National Enquirer do have Florida addresses. Um, Lantana, Florida sticks in my head as I think maybe where at least one of them is. So, so yeah, he's coming home. He's getting away from taxes. He's getting away from federal prosecutors who hate him. Uh, it, it, maybe not that difficult to to parse. But meanwhile, and and Alexandra, I do believe that that Nate Silver will figure this out at some point. That he will figure out a way to use data journalism to quantify to what degree people are booing or cheering the president at any given moment. So he's now gone to two different sporting events where the first, a Nationals World Series game, where the owners <laughs> said, Does he please don't even let him ask us to sit in our box because we don't even want to have to have that conversation. Uh, and then it was pretty clear he was being booed. And then, then he went to what you might think would be, you know, the most natural uh, audience for him, which would be the UFC. Uh, actually, just to sort of set the mood, let's hear the national game. National game. This is what the crowd sounded, oh, at yeah. least according to one fake news microphone. And they're pretty clearly going, build that wall, I think. I don't think they're uh, booing, do you? Well, my favorite thing about the Nationals booing footage, which is sort of a joy to watch, is the pure synchronization of it. Like my high school choir teacher would have given her kidney to have people who would respond as well to a cue because you have, here are the troops, yay, here's the president, boo. It just immediate. <laughs> Everyone picked up on it just flawlessly. So... Right, and then it's he goes mesmerizing because right. there's really never sort of that awkward moment of like, who are we booing for? Who are we cheering for? No, it's clear, it's consistent. It's really, <laughs> man, DC, ninety six percent. But then I think did not vote for Trump, and yeah. it shows. But then he goes to the UFC thing at Madison Square Garden, and what that was kind of interesting because almost in real time, I could see his two sons on Twitter kind of litigating this question. You know, to what degree? Are they booing as opposed to cheering? And the press is going to spin this a certain way. And But, I mean, really, the UFC, you would really kind of think maybe more than the Washington Nationals, Alexandra. That would be his crowd. Well, you would think that, but I think your mistake is confusing UFC with WWE because Ah. you know he's beloved in like the WWE circles because it's all sort of made up and the points don't matter. But actual fighting, I think for real, whenever anyone's playing a real sport that isn't in some way cleverly choreographed, then I think 
he doesn't get the kind of adulation he maybe is anticipating. But yeah, no, this is a good moment for UFC to really explain that its brand is very different from the pro wrestling you might be confusing it with if you weren't paying attention earlier because they are not the same. And now we can tell. Right. It's increasingly, uh, I mean, back to the Nationals for a second, he even got booed in their stadium when there was no game going on. There was one of those nights where you could go and gather and watch the game on the Jumbotron and experience fellowship. And he wasn't there. The Nationals were not there. The Astros were not there. But a commercial of his went up on the Jumbotron and he got booed again. Yeah, I kept wondering why the commercial would go on. I think maybe he thought, well, if they see, if they, maybe they just didn't know who I was. Maybe if they saw who I was, they think, oh, oh, we thought it was a different, we thought it was Fred Trump. We were all confused. It's this president. And I guess we, but I don't think it worked out. Right. So um, I want to also discuss with you a theory that I've been developing. It's not even really a theory. It doesn't really even aspire to those heights. But I've been thinking about... It's a hypothesis. It's a hypothesis, desiring, aspiring to be a a theory. Well, it begins with the actor Brendan Fraser. Fraser, are you familiar with Brendan Fraser? Kind of a hulking... He's the mummy, right? Yeah. He wasn't the the mummy, mummy. but he is in the mummy. Yeah, he's the mummy guy. Uh, All right, so he's been in two movies, one of them Encino Man and the other one Blast from the Past, where essentially in both instances he played a guy who was... Well, in one case, he was sort of like a you know caveman who'd been frozen in a block of ice for a long time, and he got thawed out, and he had to kind of get used to the way things are. And in the other one, he was locked in a, a fallout shelter for his entire childhood by his father, who I think was played by Christopher Walken. And once again, he had to kind of re- rejoin modernity and figure out, with the help of Alicia Silverstone, what's really going on here. And I've been thinking that they, if they make a really good Trump movie, they should consider Brendan, because he's got kind of the right body type and face type. But also, Trump, doesn't Trump have that a little bit? Like he just, he missed a whole bunch of things. They're just sort of some basic things he doesn't know, uh, including, I would say, I mean, you I mean, you may have your own mental list, and if so, I want to hear it. But like, you know, he just figured out that dogs are good, you know, and like in the last <laughs> few days. Go, run with that. No, I agree, especially on the dog thing, because I think he does have this sort of aura of somebody who picked up all of everything he knows about certain subjects just from hearing people sort of gleefully laughing in the locker room and he didn't ask any follow-up questions and so sometimes he has like a really weird assumption that (laughs) it takes him like 40 years for someone to say something and he'll have to realize oh yeah dogs are good as you as you're saying but like all his sort of firing related language where he was always saying like fired like a dog i'm like what was he employing dogs previously and were these dog employees a problem for him such that he had to keep terminating them like or crying like a dog or begging like a dog begging is an actual dog thing but the other dog activities that he kept saying people were doing in a dog-like way just made me really curious as to what his previous sense of canines had been right i mean it, it does seem as though he like maybe had really bad experiences with dogs maybe yeah you know his mom had a dog that she that she liked better than she liked him or something and so dogs it has taken to the age of is he 73? How old is he now? 
73, I'm being 73. He doesn't seem a day over 73. <laughs> right. He just figured out, he found a dog after 73 years that he likes. He likes his dog, Conan, uh, you know, who was a war dog. Uh, but, I mean, he begins that whole process by tweeting a picture of himself putting a medal on this dog that is a photoshopped picture. And, and that, Alexander, raised a question about what his state of mind was at that time. Did he... Did he not remember that he hadn't done that, for example? Well, I think like a state of mind is always a charitable way of describing what's going on with Donald Trump. But, you know, I, I also wonder about the original person in the picture who was, in fact, not a dog, but I think a person That's right. getting photoshopped <laughs> out. So hero dog Conan could be in this picture. But I think it is actually kind of ideal because Trump is a well-known germaphobe. And so getting to look as though he's having a friendly, normal interaction with a dog without actually having to physically be near a dog where it might slobber or perhaps be upset by one of the many dog whistles in his speeches, I think is ideal for him. <laughs> right. Well, Alexander Petra, as usual, great uh, to uh, get you to uh, function as an enzyme uh, and help us digest. Columnist for The Washington Post, world pun champion. She was at our pun show, the author of A Field Guide to Awkward Silences. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. All right. So um, we're going to move on to another segment. I just do want to say that, like, to my point of, like, we have to do this every week. So today, you may know that um, that a circuit appeals court has now ruled that he has to disgorge his tax returns to a grand jury. Um, so he's got no place to go with that one except to the Supreme Court. That case could wind up in the Supreme Court. Um, where there's people who owe him. You know, there's <laughs> no question about that. Uh, and... The other big development for me today, and I really recommend reading this, a guy named Peter Osnos, I think is his name, has written this piece uh, in The New Yorker about being the editor on the first two Trump books. Uh, and, and, and in particular, it's really interesting to read about what's happening as the second book is about to come out. And Trump's entire life is this total trash fire. Like he's, you know, page one story in the Washington Post about how his finances are absolutely 100% coming apart. He is just, you know, heading right into the toilet. Uh, meanwhile, his marriage is also he heading right into the toilet. It's just a great sort of description of Random House wondering what they paid $2.5 million or whatever it was for just to do this book. So if you if you need a little extra reading about the president, uh, I would recommend that one. Once again, In the New Yorker, I think by Peter Osnos. Anyway, it's easy to find. I think it's like the most popular thing on the site right now. Okay, so we're going to talk about what's happened in the world of sports journalism when we get back. If All right. Before we begin this segment, let me uh, point out to you that we are having our 10th uh, anniversary party, 10 years on the air. Who knew it could be? Ha it could even happen. Uh, and so the Colin McEnroe Show 10-year anniversary party is at Black Eyed Sally's on Wednesday, November 13th, because who doesn't like to go out for a big party on a Wednesday uh, from about 5.30 to 8? Uh, you can buy tickets on our homepage at WNPR.org. I would click the thing that says get tickets now as opposed to, I don't know, get punched in the face or other things that might be on the site. Do the, the get tickets now if you want to get tickets. All right. So um, 
You know, uh, terrible things were happening at the staff of Sports Illustrated and to the staff of Sports Illustrated. And a great place to read about that and try to understand what was going on was a a site called Deadspin, uh, which also covered sports and culture and other stuff, uh, until terrible things started happening at Deadspin, too. Like, arguably, maybe even worse things happened at Deadspin. So uh, to figure this out, to unravel this mystery for us, all we have left, really, like the last man standing, basically is Brian Curtis, editor-at-large for The Ringer, a frequent guest on this show, co-host of The Press Box, uh, and the last guy standing uh, as everything just collapses all around him, like Samson in the temple or something. Uh, all right. Well, now you've been overintroduced, Brian, but welcome back to our show. Thank you. It does sound like one of those terrible, you know, uh, post-apocalyptic movies, doesn't it? <laughs> the right. last sports writer on Earth. Right. All this plaster is kind of raining down around you. Um, <laughs> all right. So so let's start with Sports Illustrated. And you actually have coined a term, uh, mavening. Uh, Mavening refers, in fact, to the company that currently uh, um, nominally owns Sports Illustrated. So explain the phenomenon of Mavening to us. So there's a company called Maven, alternately known as The Maven, which publishes Sports Illustrated. Essentially, they took over that after a long process in which Time, Inc. divested itself of the venerable sports magazine. And their idea about this was to lay off some of the people we would understand as, you know, classic Sports Illustrated writers, people who specialize in good writing and deep reporting and long articles and those kinds of things, and replace them to some extent with this big contributor network. So you have what you call a Dallas Cowboys maven, who is a guy or gal in Dallas who makes as little as $25,000 a year and basically churns out content about the Dallas Cowboys. And then you have one of those for Notre Dame. And then you have one of those for the University of Connecticut, et cetera, et cetera. So essentially what you're doing and what I described as the mavening is taking, you know, the sports writer class of people that we like and that we read and sort of replacing it with a lot of cheaper people whose job is not to write quality sports writing so much as it is to churn out content. Right. So Sports Illustrated had this just legendary uh, Writers Hall of Fame uh, for many decades. They were white males, but that's sort of the way things were. So whether it was Robert Kramer or Dan Jenkins or Roy Blunt Jr. or on to Alexander Wolfe and Steve Russian, uh, people mm-hmm. like that, these tremendous writers who would often either do a really deep profile of somebody or write about an issue in a way that spilled across different sports franchises, maybe even different actual sports. Um, and, and so um, interestingly, the COO of this company, Maven, Bill Sorensen, said in a presentation, and this is an interesting thing to say if you were actually running the, country, the company in question, nobody is actually a fan of ESPN or Sports Illustrated. They're a fan of the New York Giants or the Iowa Hawkeyes or what have you. They're a fan of their team. Hence the model, uh, Brian, that you've just explained. Although it's a pretty damn strange thing if you are the CEO of, of the company that owns Sports <laughs> Illustrated to claim that nobody's a fan of it. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, beyond the sort of anxiety that sets off in elite sports writers, if we may call them that, you know, I, I just think that's a very strange kind of thing to say. These, some of these people involved in the Maven created those college football and college sports subscription sites about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. They were they What they did is they essentially said, okay, your local newspaper's not giving you enough sports, so we'll just give you all the University of Texas football you want, and you pay us $10 a month or whatever it is. I mean, that just feels like 19 internet lifetimes ago. So to say this idea that 
you know, you're a fan of the New York Giants, but you're not already super served by giant stuff you get from the papers, from other websites, from Bleacher Report, from your local blog, from whatever it is. And we're going to give you even more Giants coverage. And that's going to help us, you know, save this beloved brand Sports Illustrated. I find that very strange. Right. Although I think it's also worth talking a little bit about, you know, why the brand itself became so imperiled. And, and I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that. And it's also, I think, true that Sports Illustrated was not so imperiled that it still wasn't turning a modest profit up to the point mm-hmm. of these, these big changes. So, I mean, I wouldn't want to overstate that. But, you know, it's kind of interesting around... 05, 06, there were these dual revolutions. One of them had to do with political journalism. So you had a group of bloggers come along and say, you know what? A lot of these people who are paid political journalists, they don't have any special training, they're not especially smart, uh, and they often seem to be willing to cultivate access as opposed to telling us the truth. And we think, you know, at Daily Coast or at, at Digby's Hullabaloo or whatever, we feel like we can do as good a job. And we're also not, you know, sitting there salivating over our sources or our paychecks or whatever. So we are free to also speak the truth and maybe be a little bit snarkier than these people, uh, you know, are willing to be. Uh, and some of this coincided with some real revelations about how some of the professional journalists did conduct their careers. Um, so something similar, I think, was also happening in sports to a certain degree. I mean, Deadspin came along right along, right along that time, like uh, awful announcing and some other sports blogs kind of grew up. And they, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they had a similar attitude, which is, you know, a lot of these legendary legacy sports writers, they've been cultivating access. They've got way too much respect for the teams, the players, the executives, the managers, the umpires, the announcers. We don't feel that kind of indentured quality. (laughs) So we are going to say what we want to say. And, And in a way, we saw a revolution then. Oh, I think that's right. And I think if you look at the reporting of Deadspin, just like the political sites you mentioned, it all adds up to a critique, right? A media critique of the rest of the media. They're not telling you the truth, the full truth anyway. We're going to tell you the truth. And we're going to show you that the things they've been leaving out, right? Stories about race and gender and labor, right? And sports, which they do, but they do just a little bit. We're going we're gonna to kind of bring that to the center. No, I, I think that parallel is is very, very similar. I think what's interesting, when, when, you, we, when we step out on the tightrope of comparing political journalism to sports journalism, there's something really fascinating here, which is I totally believe sports fans love great writing. And I, I think they understand the difference between great writing and just so-so writing or just you know very mechanical writing. I'm not sure that sports fans, unlike political fans, really think there needs to be aggressive sports journalism that goes after the institutions in sports. You know right. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if, if I told you the New York, if we if we told political writers, hey, the New York Times and the Washington Post are going to stop challenging the White House and Congress and politicians and all that stuff, they would say that's terrible. That that, that goes against the brand. But if I told you, you're going to read fewer articles about life inside Roger Goodell's NFL and, 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 and challenging the big issues, you know, I'm not sure sports fans would care quite as much. I just don't think that matters to them as much as 
getting news about their teams and, and reading good stories about athletes and things like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, until it's pointed out to you what Sports Illustrated is doing right now, you don't even necessarily know enough to object to the current model. For example, I'm a Green Bay Packers fan. They have a guy named Bill Huber who's doing a really good job of covering the Packers, and he's covered the Packers for other websites before this, and he's got, you know, reasonably good uh, credibility, and so that's fine. So as long as I'm not thinking about what happened to Alexander Wolf or whoever it is that I used to like, you don't think about it that much. And I think you're also correct, Brian, that, you know, people— when they root for sports, in some ways, they're sort of parking their mental car in a place for a while and saying, it just really makes me happy if the Colts win, you know, and I don't really want to have to think about what goes into that particular sausage. I just want to be happy in that way. And people think about the political process very, very differently. So I, th- I th- a good point there, absolutely. We should say that what happened to Deadspin is more bizarre than what happened to Sports <laughs> Illustrated. That it goes back to probably Gawker writing an argument, uh, an article about the sex life of a billionaire who then decided to back Hulk Hogan in a defamation <laughs> lawsuit against Gawker, which was kind of the flagship entity uh, of this uh, of this armada of blogs. And and that really ultimately that's sort of what wound up sort of breaking up the whole thing and and ultimately Deadspin drifted into other hands. Uh, there's a very different company that owns them now. But I think it all started with that sequence. Now, I think that's exactly right. And then and what happens is you then weaken Gawker, and, and again, its its founder abandons it, and then you put Deadspin in the hands of this company, which is called Geo Media, which clearly doesn't want to own Deadspin, as we understand it, which is a you know butt-kicking sports blog that wants to challenge, as you say, mainstream media institutions, that wants to tweak other reporters, that wants to insist that real sports news is not, you know, Aaron Rodgers had a great game yesterday or Aaron Rodgers lost yesterday. It's, you know, what is race, class? How do those things affect it? How do all those things? They don't want to own that website. So essentially they handed down an order and said, you can't write about that stuff or, or we're going to constrict your ability to write about that stuff as much as we can, which led to basically the entire staff quitting this week. Right. And, and, and the, now there's yeah. something called Deadspin that's kind of a zombie <laughs> that is not the Deadspin we know. Right. And I want to come back to that, that, that whole zombie concept here. But we should also say that one of the, I think, positive growths that we've seen in the 21st century is the notion that these kind of segregated areas of expertise don't really work, that there's just huge amounts of overlap between, well, we can go back to politics and say, you cannot understand the modern political situation without having also understood reality television. Reality television in so many ways, or one gigantic orange way, is responsible for this you know, strange situation that we're in politically in this country right now. And one of the things that, and I give ESP some credit for pioneering this notion, but Deadspin and, and certainly now The Ringer, too, is that there's just no way you can segregate culture from sports uh, or even culture and politics and sports from one another, that there's so much overlap there. It doesn't make sense to try to talk about one without talking uh, about all of them. You can't talk about the NFL without talking about Colin Kaepernick. And if you do that, then you're talking about something else as well. And that's one of the things these new owners seem to push back against. Yeah, I think and, – and what's funny to me is I don't even think – you know, the, we can say that the writers and editors who made that argument over the last decade or so that these two – that all these things are inextricable, they made an argument. But I think from the point of view of readers, Colin, it's actually more basic. They just don't mind, right? They, they're not even convinced necessarily that those things are all tied together. They're just like, hey, I went to a website 
and I read a good article about sports, and now I don't mind reading a good article about culture, or I don't mind reading a good article about politics. I don't understand the media that we, in a way we might have understood it from the era of newspapers where there's a big wall between these sections, and, and they can never really overlap all that much. They just don't care. So it's so weird to say to Deadspin, hey, you've got a couple writers who are really interested in food writing <laughs> in a, you know, puckish, you know, thumb their noses at the establishment way, but they're interested in food writing. You can't write about food anymore. Like, I don't understand whatever. I don't under, even understand where that decision starts, because that doesn't seem like you're threatening anybody by by writing a food column next to your sports column. Right. And the other thing is, I mean, I, I think it probably showed that uh, the, the leadership of this uh, company didn't really understand the kind of workforce that they have, because, you know, we've all worked in newsrooms. We know basically what journalists are like. So if you say to them, everybody from now on, you can only write about sports. It has to be about sports. As long as it's about sports, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, Chile or something, but you can't do a whole article just about Chile. You, you can't do articles that don't have anything to do about sports. So no more of that. Everybody stop right now. We hope we've made ourselves clear. You know what's going to happen, Brian, over the next 72 hours is that everybody is going to file an article that has nothing to do with sports. <laughs> totally. Totally. And I, I just think I think maybe they thought it was going to be harder to get or easier to get rid of those people than it turned out to be. Like, I, I think there was probably a dream somewhere that they were going to be able to take take care of the troublesome staffers and get kind of a dead spin that just did whatever they wanted it to do. I didn't think I don't think they thought it would be this much trouble and it would cause this much not only you know, action within the Deadspin guys is kind of insurgency, but a reaction among readers saying, this is terrible, don't read this website. Right. And and the other thing, obviously, is that journalists tend to be pretty good at telling their own stories. So Megan Greenwell, who used to live around here and was on our show a bunch of times and stuff, she, uh, as when she resigned as, as um, interim editor-in-chief or whatever she was at that point, maybe she was editor-in-chief, um, you know, she wrote her own manifesto. People tend to do that in those situations. Uh, it's not like firing a bunch of people from a particular sector of, you know, Toyota or something. I mean, these are all people who are pretty good tell telling their own stories, and so that's what they've done. Um, and the other thing what is that there have been arguments that have gone on about whether the non-sport stories were more widely read or not. Each side has told uh, a, a different version of the same story. The management is saying, oh, no, people didn't read those stories. And staff is claiming, with some substance to back them up, no, those, a lot of those stories were the most read stories. Because, And I think that rings true because, as you're suggesting, people have kind of been trained over the years to realize, oh, no, it's okay if I step outside what I came here for if this other thing is more interesting yeah and i know you know working at the ringer there are some days where you know there's a great football game like you know the the patriots lose to the ravens that's going to be the big story there's another day when the football game was really the sunday night game was boring and trump was the better story or you know we had something from martin scorsese and the irishman that was a better story it just it nobody reads it that way and and it's really story dependent i think and writer dependent so yeah no i totally i i believe 
their numbers to whatever they say that this was not an easy sports does well, other stuff does bad kind of argument. Right. And as if to kind of complete the argument, uh, Bernie Sanders and Cory Booker, for that matter, <laughs> Bernie Sanders, I stand with the former Deadspin workers who decided not to bow to the greed of private equity vultures like Jim Spanfeller. This is the kind of greed that is destroying journalism across the country. And together we are going to take them on. They, they turned into a campaign issue in about, you know, 10 minutes after resigning. If I had had to plot out how Deadspin would end, I, w- I hope that I would have come up with they are facing off with a knucklehead boss and they quit in mass and that secondly, Bernie Sanders would tweet about it. Right. I mean, that, w- that would be the dream ending if we had to drop how Deadspin falls. Right. If you were writing this story as kind of a plot line for season three of Succession, you'd have the <laughs> exactly. you'd have the Eric Bogosian character at a certain point, you know, just like tweet something really horrible about what the Roy family had done to these sports writers. And it would just fit uh, beautifully. I guess there's one other thing that I wanted to say. And I don't know. And you are so uniquely poised to talk about this. So, um, you know, one thing that there still is. Uh, is our really good long-form sports journalism pieces. The Ringer has them. The Athletic has them. Grantland used to have them. Um, Deadspin obviously has had them. But I'm also wondering about that, you know? I mean, like today I read this tremendous Deadspin piece about this soccer team that kind of plays on behalf of all the Palestinians who are in refugee camps and they've just turned into this, you know, bigger than sports, bigger than soccer kind of thing and it's really really fascinating and it pulls in together it pulls in all the politics of the Middle East and the complexities of the Palestinian Palestinian diaspora but I'm thinking who's going to read this piece it's like really long and it's complicated I, I did find myself thinking I wonder what the future is for that really good kind of long form piece that probably wouldn't even have raised an eyebrow in the just you know absolutely halcyon years of Sports Illustrated I'll tell you this, Colin. I think that kind of piece has probably been endangered for my entire 20-year journalism career and probably my entire life. Yeah. You know, we've thought of that. Like, what's going to happen to that? And what you're really referring to, right, is a classic SI, what they called a bonus piece that wasn't about the news of the week, that was just just required reading because it was so interesting or it was so good. Um, I think the answer to that is it's never been part of sports writing core mission, ever anywhere you know and even at si right that was the fun thing the thing that was that that sold magazines was the thing on the cover the thing that happened on the on the diamond or on the on the football field that week so what's the future of that the future of that is you have to find people who want to to publish that stuff i mean that is really all it is i mean i wish i could you know i could cite traffic stats and say those stories do really well they do uh that they help a, a magazine or website establish its identity that is certainly true but really it comes down to you have a proprietor who wants to run it and wants to spend money on it and wants their employees to, you know, be gone for a few weeks or a few months working on that stuff. Yeah, that's no, I think what that's it true. is. And when we run out of those people, we run out of those stories. And it probably also means that those of us who are readers have to change some I mean, like I sort of I've been kind of cheap, I guess, about getting a subscription to The Athletic. Well, now I'm going to subscribe to The Athletic because, like, you know, I, if that's what it takes, uh, you know, if that's where some of that stuff is going to move to, which is, I'm guessing, might, you know, that in the ring or some other places, uh, mm-hmm. then you have to sort of say, okay, well, I have to also adjust my expectations about when I'm going to pay, how I'm going to pay for it, how I'm going to c- consume stuff. It's a, it's a little bit on the consumers to do this too, right? Oh, absolutely. And, 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 and yeah, and support, support where it is. And if you like it, just, yeah, that's right. You vote with your wallet. But honestly, I just think 
it's one of the, it's it's almost one of those life finds a way things. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'm always hearing that long form journalism is in danger. It right. certainly is, and I don't want to minimize that. But then somebody writes a good long, great long form piece, and everybody goes, "Oh, this is great! We we need more of this." Yeah. So you know, I don't think we're all going to stop writing it tomorrow, and I think it'll kind of find its way into the ecosystem somehow. All right. Well, it's great to talk to you, uh, Brian Curtis, and um, I'm sure that, you know, Bill Simmons isn't walking around going, nobody is actually a fan of The Ringer uh, the way they do uh, in some companies like Sports Illustrated. Uh, Anyway, The Ringer's great. Uh, You're great. Uh, The Press Box, uh, your uh, podcast is terrific, too. Thanks for joining us today, Brian. Thanks always, Colin. All right. We'll take a little break. We're going to come back. Um, I'll be honest. uh, When President Obama made his remarks last week uh, about um, not jumping too quickly to condemnation uh, in social media situations, uh, he made this at a youth summit. I I applauded. I thought it was great. But not everybody did. It turns out not everybody's exactly like me, which I find really perplexing. Okay, so a few thank yous that we need to say, starting with, so Kion Wolf had to go home today because she has a cough and she lost her voice. I guess that was like a HIPAA violation I just did there. But uh, anyway, so bravely sitting at her spot in the control room and probably contracting rage virus uh, is Jonathan McPants, uh, who is uh, jumping in there for him. So he he gets today's hazmat prize for broadcast journalism. Uh, Kevin, our terrific intern, is in there uh, working on the phones and stuff like that. And uh, Betsy Kaplan is sitting in the um, main uh, big important producer seat going, he's not doing what I told him to do as usual. So that's who's working on it today. Tomorrow, we tomorrow we it's election day tomorrow. So um, I don't know what that has to do with what I'm about to tell you, actually. But we decided to reach into our vaults and have and pull out a show that has nothing to do with the election. Uh, we went through a period where we were fascinated with certain musical instruments. Uh, so we're bringing up back our show about the harmonica, where we brought a whole bunch of harmonica players into the studio. And it, it sounds like it be like a long 49 minutes, but it's not, actually. It's really, really fun and really, really interesting. And Kyone Wolf gets a harmonica lesson on it and stuff like that. So that's what's coming up tomorrow. Uh, okay, so that's everything. Uh, so uh, as I uh, indicated before, last week at an Obama Foundation Youth Summit, uh, President Obama was talking about a lot of different things. It's, a, it's kind of an interesting kind of discussion. It's him and a young person in a chair, a young journalist uh, in a chair, and then some other pe- young people sitting around, and they're all kind of asking him questions about stuff. And at a certain point, uh, he veered off into this particular area. One danger I see among young people, particularly on college campuses, Malia and I talk about this, but I do get a sense sometimes now among certain young people, and this is accelerated by social media, there is this sense sometimes of the way of me making change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people. And that's enough. Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or used the word wrong verb or then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because man, you see how woke I was? I called you out. (laughs) That's not... That's not activism. That, that's not bringing about change. You know, if, 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 if all you're doing is casting stones, 
uh, you know, you're, you're probably not going to get that far. That's easy to do. All right. So, um, as I say, to me, I didn't find anything to disagree with about what he said, but I'm maybe closer to him in age than our next guest, uh, Ernest Owens, a journalist, writer at large for Philadelphia Magazine, and CEO of Ernest Media Empire. There were a number of people who were less happy with what President Obama had to say. Uh, so, Ernest Owens, uh, tell me, tell me more about that. Tell me why there was, if not a backlash, some pretty strong criticism of the words that he spoke. Well, yes, thank you for having me on. I'm sure. really excited. I'm talking to you from Philadelphia, so um, greetings. Uh, but I think part of the issue is so much that Obama seemed to have trivialized a larger um, context to which a lot of young people are going to social media and critiquing and how they do view being woke and what, what type of tools and ways in which that we are responding to the issues around us. And I think that Obama is... One of Obama's greatest strengths and one of his weaknesses in certain sense is that when striving to find common ground, he attempts to really simplify things in a way to get everyone on the same page. But when it comes to, you know, this type of particular topic, the complexity and the nuance um, that creates wokeness and ways in which people are critical on social media is a lot more complex than how he framed it. It's not just about people having the wrong verb or a simple disagreement. It's actually a lot more um, com complicated than that. I think, although, I mean, first of all, th those are words, complicated, nuanced. Those are words that he used, actually, to explain w the problem that he was having. It seemed to me that he, he made kind of two arguments that were interlocked. One of them was that, as he said, life is messy. There are ambiguities. There are ways in which you, you're not always going to be able to seek purity. I think he gave the example of, let's say you want to do something good and you need money to do something that's uh, that's worthwhile in the community and you have to get some of that money from an institution or entity that hasn't always behaved well. And you have to ultimately weigh the question of whether or not what you're going to accomplish with this money validates your choice of getting some of the money from a tainted source. Uh, that was sort of one argument he was making. And then the other argument he was making was that stuff you do on your phone, as opposed to maybe really having real skin in the game, stuff you do on your phone is just not enough. You know, to, to, quick, to click a thumbs up or a thumbs down and then, and then sit back isn't enough. So, I mean, maybe we could just talk about both of those things. I mean, in a way, I thought he was on slightly shakier ground with the first thing. Like, how much do you have to dance with the devil before you decide you're not going to dance with the devil anymore? To me, that's a slipperier slope than his critique of kind of smartphone activism. Well, the, the issue is, is that smartphone activism, even when people use that type of rhetoric, it is very ableist, um, and I say ableist because of the fact that what we have, what, what people have to understand is that everyone in society and different people have different positions in life where they can do certain things. And what has been one of the successes of social media, because a lot of people say a lot of negative things, but social media has allowed to amplify issues in, in ways that that there's more things are happening, right? If social media was just simply people sitting on couches not doing anything, the, the world would, would not be where it's at today. There's a lot of resources going into social media. Um, and, and I would say on the more positive angle, that is spreading out information and helping amplify it. When people, when, when, when 100,000 people retweet something or use a hashtag about Me Too or use something about Mute R. Kelly or talk about rape culture or other issues that are happening in our society, 
you know, as much as we say that, oh, that's not enough, you have to ask yourself, for that young girl who is somewhere talking about, you know, Sandy Hook or some, some gun shooting, maybe that is all that that person can give. But that means something. And the people who do can do more should do more. And we shouldn't ignore that this is one tool. No one, no one has ever said that social media is the sole answer. But I would argue to those people that are primarily boomers and older Gen Xers that why are we being, I guess, ageist and even in some ways ableist and dismissing the fact that social media can be used as a tool to help amplify. And that for some young people, this is the entry rate. For Black Lives Matter, the hashtag Black Lives Matter inspired countless youth, including myself when I was in college, of how to see activism in a different way. For me, it started with a hashtag, but it connected me to a community of people in my own hometown that was able to mobilize around these issues. And so I feel like there is a very myopic you know, narrative going on about how to see social media. It is a tool. It is an ingredient to a larger recipe. And a lot of older people and those who have lots of power, as much as they want to dismiss it, the, the president of the United States has, has made declarations and has made entire, you know, sanctions and vocalized them off of social media. The world should be recognizing that it's not just something that people just you know, click on their thumbs about. The world must pay attention to the current actions that are happening on social media because our president is breaking news every day on social media. So the fact, and then it took social media to get this president elected. The hypocrisy of Obama is for him to dismiss social media when it was, it was, it was in his presidency that social media helped launch the backbone of other presidencies and campaigns to follow. Yeah, but so let me I just let me just let me just well let me just interject. I, I mean, first of all, I don't think that President Obama would disagree with a lot of the stuff that you just said. You know, I mean, I don't think that he was discrediting a movement like Black Lives Matter. Although, if it just stayed on social media and didn't move into the streets, didn't become part of the physical reality of a place like Ferguson, you know, then maybe his critique is a little bit more on point. I think he's talking more about you know you jump on the way somebody expressed themselves. He said somebody uses the wrong verb. Or I'll give you a concrete example. You probably remember this. Uh, about a year ago uh, or so, there was a, an incident on the National Mall. There was a, a Native American activist. I think there was another group called the Black Hebrews. And then there, there were these white guys from Covington, Kentucky. They were high school students. And there was this picture taken of one of the kids kind of face-to-face with a Native American person. And the internet went completely nuts. You know, and for 48 hours, it was just this huge tweet-a-thon. And like, a thon and dislike a thon. And really, when you stripped it all away, what had happened is what happens just about every day on the National Mall, at least on the weekend, which is different groups show up there and they kind of get on each other's nerves. You know, I don't think too much else had really had happened that day. But, you know, think of all the energy. I think Obama was saying, don't use your energy on stuff like that. If it feels like something you can manage just on your phone, then maybe it's not as real as other stuff that's worth, you know, really paying attention to, including Ernest, some of the stuff you're talking about. But, but to be quite honest, you know, it's a, it's a free speech. And we lose so much of our energy and time speaking about how people express themselves and, and the nuance of that. And why are we blaming on young people when, quite frankly, it was the media that also pushed that story and other adults who did. I think it's ages to keep oftentimes projecting a lot of the societal ills and problems of communication on young people when that wasn't young people doing that. There was a lot of grown adults doing that. And so for him to, you know, in many ways have this paternalistic 
um, characterization of that situation or any situations like it is the problem, right? Like we always use youth as a scapegoat for a lot of problems on social media. Older people are using social media, various different demographics are using social media. And, it's, and, and for us to consistently treat the, the most immature person on social media right now might be the man who's in the Oval Office right now. No disagreement. Um, yeah, so no. I think it, it, it's like, come on, like there's a lot of trolls and internet trolls that are harassing people, saying things that are problematic, driving up quote unquote council culture of certain things. And it's not really young people that's really at the heart of a lot of those things. So I don't know why we stand to our fellow millennials like myself are often used as a scapegoat or the face of those types of issues. Because the biggest ones that you're naming, they're not young people. That's why that wasn't young people driving that. Right. No, I, I agree. I agree. The, the, the degree that he made it about generation, I, I, I mean, he happened to be at a youth summit and he's a dad and he's got a college age daughter. And maybe that's a little bit about what, what you're hearing there. But I would agree that there, there's no generation specific aspect to this problem. All the people are doing it. Anybody who has a smartphone is using it in in place of, uh, of real action. So I, you've got a great point there. We've got about 60 seconds left. So I want you to have your the, the last word here. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, in a nutshell, I would just encourage people to just, you know, think about ways in which we look at social media and these types of movements as a tool. It shouldn't be all, but it shouldn't be nothing. We should really find ways to have sensible conversations with young people, with everyone about responsible ways to have social media, but also recognize that free speech is a democratic right and that we're not always going to be perfect and that there should be room for error. But we should also recognize that just because a couple of people have had a bad experience or someone didn't like the way something went down, that it should be an indictment on, on the new generation. So. Well, Ernest Owens, great to get uh, perspective from you. One of the voices of your generation, journalist, writer at large for Philadelphia Magazine and CEO of Ernest Media Empire. Hey, thanks for doing this today. Thank you. And uh, you know, you and President Obama, at some point, you're going to sit down and have a beer. He likes to do that with people. And you're going to know you're going to you're going to iron this whole thing out. I guarantee you that's going to happen. I, uh, I look forward to it. <laughs> all right. So thanks very much. I, I'm like your Obama surrogate today. Well, I did talk to him once. I mean, that's got to mean something, right? He was on the show. Uh, all right. So uh, thanks to everybody who helped out today. Uh, Jonathan McNichol will probably be out for the next two months with whatever he caught from the microphone. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, But Betsy Capital will be here. But, uh, Betsy Capital will prop us all up while we're wheezing and coughing from whatever. <laughs> <laughs>